Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So we're gonna start this morning with a question. I'm gonna ask you a question. Whatever pops into your head, I want you to share with the person who's sitting next to you, okay? So I want you to think about movies. Okay, movies. I want you to think in movies, goodbye scenes. Right? Scenes that were where somebody was saying goodbye or maybe somebody was dying or something like that. And it was like an emotional <gasps> moment, okay? So one of those moments, goodbye scene, think about it. What pops into your head? Ready, think, think, think. Share it with the person next to you. <clears throat> I got people high-fiving over here. All right. All right, good. 
All right, let's find out. What were you high-fiving over? Marvel movies. Marvel movies, okay. Like when Iron Man died, that was it, right? Yes, incredible goodbye scene. Uh, did anybody pick Lord of the Rings? There we go, awesome. When, I mean, when Frodo got on the ship and said, I'm not going to the Shire, I mean, <sighs> okay, anybody do E.T.? E.T., good job, you know. I mean, when the little, what was his name, uh, Elliot, you know, stay, go, stay, go. You know, I mean, that was a good, it was a good one, right? Uh, you know, there was, uh, uh, you know, like some of you older guys, uh, maybe Casablanca, Rick and Elsa. Anybody say Casablanca? Yeah, no, so of course, the gray hairs, right? Yeah, we got Casablanca, you know. We'll always have Paris. Here's looking at you, kid. You know, that was a great goodbye scene. Uh, give me some other ones. What else? Gone with the Wind. Funny story about Gone with the Wind. In our small group, we asked this question, and my wife said, oh, you know, Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara, Gone with the Wind. Frankly, my dear, we'll stop right there, right? And, uh, you know, yeah, great scene. The younger couples in our covenant group, one of them finally said, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, which immediately made Catherine not feel so young anymore, right? <laughs> we love being part of a multi-generational church and multi-generational groups. Those types of uh, 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 situations are always funny, you know, as they come across. Yeah, so many good scenes like that. Uh, my, 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 the one that gets me every single time, and I saw it again the other day, popped up right at the right time. Forrest Gump, when he's saying goodbye to Jenny. Anybody say Forrest Gump besides me? Yeah, several of you. Okay, good. Forrest Gump, when he's saying goodbye to Jenny, and then he says goodbye to Jenny at the, at the, at the, to, you know, at the whatever you call the tombstone, right? And then when he says goodbye to little Forrest at, when he puts him on the bus, yeah, that's what you were saying? Yeah, exactly. I mean, is that not a heart? It's like, you know, goodbye. Okay, so I bring all that up because this passage is one emotional goodbye scene. That's what it is. This is the final words of Paul to a group of elders, the church of Ephesus, that are near and dear to his heart, and he is near and dear to their hearts. He is their spiritual father. And this is an emotional scene. Now, to, put, to, to set some context, we actually skipped the planting of the Ephesian church. It was in chapter 19, uh, you know, at the end of, in the middle of chapter 18, as he leaves Corinth, he takes Priscilla and Aquila with them. Remember Priscilla and Aquila? Remember them? Shake your head, okay? Uh, they were in Corinth with him. He takes them with him. He's sailing back to Jerusalem. He's going to give a report. He's coming to the end of the second missionary journey. And on the way, he drops them off in Ephesus. He makes his way on to Jerusalem and he reports there. And at Antioch, he stays there for about a year. And then around 52, 53 AD, he starts another missionary journey. This will be his third missionary journey. He starts out by revisiting all the churches that he has planted in his first and his second missionary journeys there in Asia Minor. He walks all the way across Asia Minor and then he arrives in Ephesus. And for three years, he ministers in this critical city 
crossroads, a city that unites the, the western portion of the Roman Empire with the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. For three years, he ministers there. And then he moves on. He goes across the, uh, the sea to Macedonia and he revisits all the churches, Thessalonica, Philippi, Der, you know, um, you know, um, Berea, and then down to Corinth. And he spends time there and he comes back up to Philippi and he spends uh, a Passover at Philippi, and he's been collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Some of you just may resonate, you know, you've read of this in Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and you've heard me refer to this offering when I've preached on giving and things like this, right? And so now when he's in Philippi, he says, I wanna make it back to Jerusalem before Pentecost. So he has roughly 50 days to, to sail from Philippi all the way around to Jerusalem. And so he gets in the boat and they start taking off. And, and he gets held up at a couple of places because he's stopping to see people along the way. And they all are having, you know, dinner on the grounds and they're all having, you know, these big, long, drawn out visits. And so he doesn't stop in Ephesus. He actually sails past it. And then, they, and then when they stop, it's close enough. And he realizes we're going to be here long enough. He sends for the elders and they come. And they come over to meet with him. And in this passage... Dr. Luke gives us a record of what is said. And what's interesting and what makes this passage so important is actually the only message in the book of Acts that is given explicitly to a group of Christians. And it's about their church. So it's a unique message from an apostle to people who are by, by and large like us. And so when we look at this, we, we really see some neat parallels. Paul begins by looking backwards in time, and he describes how he planted this church and the way he went about it, and it reveals a very straightforward approach in these opening verses. The first thing you see is this compassionate humility in the opening verses. He says in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in, uh, in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials. In verse 31, for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. When it comes to Paul, there was no celebrity pastor mentality here. There was no hip guy who was shucking some prosperity gospel, living large at the expense of the people who ended up listening to him and believing. No, not at all. What you have here is something that Jonathan just prayed about, mentioning in relationship to Brian and commending him for it, servant leadership. This is servant leadership personified. Man of God, living life right with the people. So much so that he's working bivocationally, taking the, the salary and the money that he's earning in order to help support the needs of the ministry, not lording it over the people, but living right among them, experiencing their joys and their sorrows, their struggles and their victories with them. He is with them in humility, compassionate humility. And then you see in verse 20, this courageous engagement. He says, how I did not, you know, how I did not shrink from declaring anything profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, that word shrink, the Greek word there derives from a nautical term. 
when they would pull down the sails and get them ready because they were coming into the, a fierce storm. And so it came to refer to as a word to, to imply that you were cowering or you were drawing back. Maybe you were timid because of a fearful situation. And so what he says here is, I did not shrink. I did not pull back. I wasn't timid in the face of what were fearful situations. And certainly Paul did experience situations that were fearful. He goes into synagogues like he does every city. And again, he has opposition from Jewish religious leaders. In the city of Ephesus, and like maybe, maybe there, certainly there were other cities like this, but especially mentioned in this city, there was demonic activity. Exorcisms were taking place, and there were even Jewish exorcists who began to imitate the ministry of Paul, the sons of Sceva. It's worth going back and reading in chapter 19 what happened to those guys. It's kind of interesting to see that didn't work out too well for them. It gets, got even worse as the gospel grew and the impact of the church and it happened to affect the city, the idolatrous worship began to decline and it began to affect the bottom line of the merchants whose living depended upon people buying silver statues and other items of false worship to the god Artemis where the, the massive temple in Ephesus was. And so because of this economic impact the trade union of the silversmith, they, they rioted, they literally rioted in the city going after Paul's head and those who were associated with him and it got very violent. I mean, he faced difficult situations and yet Paul did not shrink back. He ministered to anyone, anywhere who wanted to hear the gospel. One-on-one, -on -one, Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. Religious, irreligious, didn't matter. Small group, in a marketplace, in a synagogue. It got to the point where they actually rented out a school room, a big school hall, a meeting hall that was used as a school during the daytime. And then they used it for, I guess, either in the evenings or on Sundays for worship, kind of like Ben and Bayside. And it didn't matter. Anybody who wanted the gospel, he gave it to it. There was this approach that was very straightforward compassionate humility, courageous engagement, but most importantly, it was centered on the gospel. Testifying of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, he, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Again, that phrase, shrink. He gave them the gospel. This is Paul's modus operandi. This is how he approached every city. The gospel, giving the gospel, the whole counsel of God. To the Corinthians, he would write this, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In short, what Paul did, his approach, was that he incarnated the gospel everywhere he went to anyone and everyone who would give him the opportunity. He incarnated our Savior by being this humble servant but humble doesn't mean timid and weak. He didn't back down from opposition, but he addressed it with the power of God and with the truth of God. Yet that truth was always balanced with the grace of God. 
And that's critical to understand. This is why I say he's incarnated our savior who was full of grace and truth. And that balance is important because it's that balance that made it so that people across the spectrum were willing to listen. At the very least, they were willing to listen to what Paul had to say and then decide for themselves whether they agreed or disagreed and considered it. But they at least listened because he had this incarnation of grace and truth. So the first thing we see in this passage of Ephesians, as Paul is looking backwards, we see this straightforward approach that he took to planting the church and then to discipling and building up these new converts. In the next portion of the passage, he looks forward to this church and what's gonna occur. And he gives a somber warning, a warning that has two facets to it. The first facet is a personal one. It's a personal one that deals with Paul himself. We're in verses 22 to 27. You can imagine if you are these elders and you're gathered together to meet with Paul, when you come to verse 22 through verses 27, those verses have to be startling. When he tells them that the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that imprisonment and trials and tribulation await him and he will never see them again, that this is it, last time they ever see one another. You can imagine what goes through their hearts and their minds, we'll see it in just a moment. And yet, as Paul says this, you do not see him depressed and discouraged and down about this. Instead, he doubles down. He presses on. He, he looked, verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Did you catch what he said? Listen, I am going to be in prison. I'm going to be, I'm going to be put on trial. I have tribulations. I'm not going to see you. This could end up in my death. I know I'm going into something bad, but that is okay. I don't count my life as being all that precious to me. Can you say that this morning? I, I struggle with that. I mean, I, I kind of like my life. That's a hard one. How does, how does that, what produces that kind of resolve and perspective? I would, I would suggest to you that it's at the end there's the last few words in verse 24 to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, the apostle Paul had so, he was so overwhelmed on that road to Damascus by the grace of God. And ever since that point in time, as it grew in his life, the grace of God and the gospel so radically affected the apostle Paul that it became this all-consuming reality in his life. That this calling, this purpose within the kingdom of God to proclaim the goodness and the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ surpassed all other concerns. So much so that when year, 10 years after this event, roughly, when he's in a Roman jail, and he's writing to 
the Philippians. And he's facing the, the acts of the executioner. He will say to the Philippians, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How does this resolve grow in us? It grows in us the more we realize that Christ Jesus has made us his own. We belong to Jesus. We've been bought with a price. And the more we come to understand this and apply that Jesus has made us his own, that he has bought us with his blood, and that he has set us free from the bondage of death and from the bondage and enslavement of sin, that he has actually given us life. That all the things that we hold on to, that we think are life, isn't actually life. That is Jesus who is life. And the more we come to understand this, and the more the Holy Spirit works on us and removes these blinders, the more this kind of perspective begins to take over, the more we can agree with Paul. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. We're not all there yet. Some of us are closer to that statement than others. But the good news of the gospel is, is that he who's begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And by the time the Lord takes us home, he'll get us there. Church, Christian, he'll get you there. So the first warning's about Paul. It's his future. And certainly there's personal application there for us. The second facet to this warning, though, is more corporate. As he's talking to the elders of this church, warning them about dangers to come to their church, and it's in that warning we also have application for our church. As he warns that the church is going to face future perils. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In this passage, Paul uses three different words that are actually synonyms for the same leadership position in the church. First, he uses the word elder. Comes from the Greek word presbyteros. We get the word Presbyterian from it. We particularly like that word, right? Uh, it, it means elder, and it's the idea of a leader, the, the organizational leader, the respected leader. Elder, presbyteros. Then he uses the word overseer. It comes from the Greek word episkopos. Sounds familiar, right? What does that sound like? Yeah, episcopalian, okay? And, and it's in, in, in older uh, English translations, they would have the word bishop instead of overseer. 
And this is where you get the idea of bishops. And that word overseer, episkopos, it means guardian. So elder is leader, um, overseer, episkopos is guardian. And then the third word that he uses, in the English Standard Version, in verse 28, it says care. And that's really not a, a good translation of the word. The word is better, the better word is shepherd. Other English translations say shepherd the church of God. And that word shepherd means to care and feed. And so in those three words, you get a job description for what the elders and leaders of the church are supposed to be doing for the church of God, the, the little C church, us. We are the little C church, right? The big C church is the universal church, that word Catholic that Paxson used, that old English word Catholic, which means universal, every Christian in the world who believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But we're little C church, a local manifestation of the church of God, right? In this local body, our leaders are supposed to ensure that we as the sheep are, the Christians, that we are led, that we are guarded and protected, that we are fed, and that we are cared for. That's the job description, essentially. And so what, what Paul does is he pulls from the Old Testament. He uses a metaphor shepherds, flocks, wolves, sheep. It's used many times in the Old Testament by God. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses one to six, he opens up by saying, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And he goes on to announce judgment upon the priest and the religious leaders and to the kings who have led the people of God into spiritual adultery, into spiritual idolatry. And he promises that after the exile and after all has, the dust has settled, that he is going to gather his sheep from around the world and he is going to put them under many shepherds, all of whom will answer to that promised seed of David, the king of righteousness, the great shepherd. Sounds like what we just read to Brian in 1 Peter 5, right? Where where Peter says, I, as an elder, appeal to you, elders, shepherd the flock, don't lord it over them, love them, care for them, lead them, for we give an answer to the great shepherd, and we know who the great shepherd is, Jesus, who laid down his life for the sheep, and why? Why should the shepherds take this charge so seriously? Because as overseers, the elders are guarding something that is infinitely valuable to God. I had a conversation recently with a young man, a younger man. And he had left his church, not our church, another church. And he, and he had dropped out of church completely and he was just doing his own thing. And, and every word out of his mouth was just filled with contempt about the churches that he had been a part of. And, and, and I understand and I, and I sympathize with him that every church is going to have its issue or issues at different times. Why? Because every church, I told him, is made up of people like you, which he didn't like. And then I said, and me. In other words, sinners. And so every church is going to have problems. No perfect church. But you know what is not allowed, I think, by God? is for us to have contempt 
and scorn and derision and words of criticism and sarcasm and contempt towards God's church. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood to purchase his bride, the church. God gave his son to purchase the church. It is infinitely valuable to him. And Paul says to the elders, you are guarding something that is incredibly precious to our heavenly Father and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand the significance of the charge that you have and the responsibility that you have. That Jesus died for this entity, this organization. And Jesus loves it and is determined to make it pure and holy and perfect. And even now, while it has its flaws and its issues and its problems, that is not how it will end up. And so we guard it. It's why we should take it so seriously. Why should we take it seriously? Because this valuable, infinitely precious person and entity to God faces dangers from both without and from within. From without, there are the false teachers and the false doctrines, the attacks upon the truth of God's word on the person of Jesus Christ, the cults and all of the different heresies that arise. But, but do you know, honestly, through my years of ministry, pastoring, I've had very few people in the churches that I've pastored who have fallen prey to outright heresy. The danger from without is not outright heresy. The danger from without is the syncretism of worldly philosophies with biblical truth. It is the mishmash of things from our world that sound good but are ultimately false and combining it with things from God's word that are true and developing a worldview or a parenting philosophy or a marriage philosophy or a life philosophy that you own as your own and in reality, because it is not 100% from God, but a somewhat percent from God's word and somewhat percent from secular humanism or from some atheistic philosophy that you picked up on Dr. Phil, you end up leading your family or your life astray. That's the greater threat from without for most Christians. So the dangers are from without. And the elders are supposed to protect from that. We joked earlier about the recruiting Robin for security team with axe duty, you know. But you know, literally, that's, we're protecting from dangers from without. It's part of the role. And then sadly, in our world today, this is why we have all the security measures, why we check in the way we do with children, and why we have all the risk management policies and everything else because of the dangers from without. But then there's the dangers from within. Division. Gossip that creates division. Maybe the greatest danger from within that we have right now, I think even in our church. You ready? Ready? Apathy. Apathy. Spiritual apathy. Lukewarmness. Either hot or cold. God help us. Dangers from within, unrepentant sin. 
These are the things the elders have to be on guard for. But you notice that what Paul starts with is pay careful attention to yourselves. One of the greatest dangers from within to the church is the leadership of the church. He starts by reminding the leaders of the church that we start protecting the church by guarding the flock, by first looking out for one another and ensuring that those of us who are in leadership positions, that we're holding each other accountable, that we're leading from a position of humility, that we're walking with the Holy Spirit and we're making decisions guided by the wisdom and the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit and not according to our own wisdom and our own intelligence and our own skills and abilities and working out of the flesh. This is why a church has to be led by a plurality of elders. This is why it can't be one person. For those of you who are new to our church, I might have the title of senior pastor, but you must understand that all of those elders that were on the stage, we all have one vote. I do not run this church. And I do not want to run this church. Do you know why? Because I don't have the ability, the wisdom to, to do it. I'm too much of a sinner to have that kind of power. You've heard the statement, power corrupts. Absolute power what? corrupts absolutely. This is why the scriptural model is a plurality of elders, a number of elders who have responsibility for leading the flock and their first responsibility is to pay attention to one another so that spirits of arrogance or division or worldliness aren't setting in within the leadership. How's that? So Paul has started us with a straightforward approach, a somber warning, and now we come to the climax of his final words, a sacred commitment. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That word commend, it's important. It means to entrust for safekeeping to entrust someone to the care and protection of someone else. It is a weighty responsibility to be a leader in God's church, whether it's an elder, a deacon, a small group leader, a discipleship group leader in children's ministry or in youth ministry or any kind of Stephen ministry, any kind of leadership responsibility in a church, that is a weighty responsibility. And so many times you feel like a failure. And, and you can pour your life into people or into a family or into a home or into a marriage only to see it blow up. 
and all of that work seemingly have no beneficial fruit. It can be incredibly discouraging. You can wonder, am I making any difference at all in this child's life? Is this teenager even listening to me? Is this couple ever going to to stop it? And just listen to what God's words are. What's happening here? Why won't this person believe the gospel? Lord, I, I don't know what else to say. I can't make the gospel any clearer. You're gonna have to do it. Aren't you glad that Paul says to these elders, guys, here's the deal. The ultimate success and care of this church, it's God's responsibility. It is God who is going to take care of us. It is God who's going to take care of the Ephesian church. It is God who's going to take care of the church at Covenant. And it is Jesus who says, I am going to be the one who builds my church. Elders, deacons, volunteers, yes, we work and we serve our Lord Jesus. But do you know, we cannot grow this church. We can't. Now, we can, we can have false growth, don't get me wrong. I mean, we can do gimmickry and, and all that, and we can build a crowd. But when I talk about really build growth, real growth, eternal growth, spiritual growth, I mean, we can do a song and dance and have people come in by the hundreds, but I'm talking about eternal, significant, impacting growth that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. That kind of growth. We can't produce that. Only Jesus through the Holy Spirit can do that. That's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful servants who give the gospel and the word of God in a humble servant-like manner as we see here in the Ephesian church. And the good news, as Paul points out to these Ephesians, is this is what God does. And how does he do it? The primary means by which God does this is the gospel, the word of his grace. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is the gospel that God uses to establish you, to make you strong. It's the gospel that God uses as we teach it and proclaim it and live it out in word and deed, as it takes over our lives, as it changes us, and we live life with those who don't know Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit using that gospel message in us that brings about the change in others. And this is where the power resides. It has that power to establish, to strengthen, to make someone solid. It gives an eternal inheritance. And when we understand this eternal inheritance, it changes our perspective and our outlook on life and how we live on this earthly plane. This is why Paul could say what he said earlier. I know I'm gonna face these things, but it's okay. I'm all about the kingdom and being able to testify to the gospel and the grace of God that I have. That's why Paul can say for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I consider all these things dung, rubbish. Why? Because the gospel had changed the out, his outlook on life. The life that he had on this earthly plane he had this eternal inheritance 
and he understood what that meant. So it changed life here on earth. This is where we struggle. I know this is where I struggle. It's so easy for us to get our eyes set on things here on earth rather than on those things that are above. And so when he concludes this message to them, he gives this very practical example of silver and gold. Because when we get this, when the Holy Spirit does this work in our lives, it empowers us to put silver and gold and all the other things of this world that are so often abused and worshiped and allows us to put them in their rightful place. Understanding that these things are gifts from God, that he gives them to us for, for our good and for the good of the kingdom. But these are gifts from God to be stewarded and managed in a way that honors our Lord and furthers his kingdom. These aren't things to be coveted and hoarded and worshiped and looked to for security. Not at all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that we see here of the gospel at work in the life of this church in Ephesus. I pray, Father, that this work of the gospel would take place in our hearts. Lord, I thank you for the growth that I see. I'm thankful that I'm not the man that I used to be. Lord, help me to become the man that I need to be. And Lord, I would pray the same for so many here. As we walk and we follow our Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the grace that you have given us in him. Lord, would you use us to build your kingdom? Would you build your kingdom here at Covenant Church? Would you build it in our lives? Would you build it in your community here in Palm Bay through our church? Would you help us, Father, to live out the gospel in that perfect balance of grace and truth filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might see the lost come to know Jesus and grow into faith and be established and strong. In your name we pray, amen.